0: Chapter One of Fighting the Flames. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel. Fighting the Flames by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter One. How the Fight Began. One's own fireside is, to all well-regulated minds, a pleasant subject of contemplation when one is absent, and a source of deep gratification when present especially may this be said to be the case in a cold raw night in november when mankind has a tendency to become chronically cross out of doors and nature generally looks lugubrious for just in proportion as the exterior world grows miserably chill the world at home with its blazing gas its drawn curtains its crackling fires and its beaming smiles becomes doubly comfortable and cosy even james auberly pompous stern and ungenial though he was appeared to entertain some such thoughts, as he sat by his own fireside one such night in his elegant mansion in Beverly Square, Euston Road, London, and smiled grimly over the top of the Times newspaper at the fire. Mr. Auberly always smiled, when he condescended to smile, grimly. He seldom laughed. When he did so, he did it grimly, too. In fact, he was a grim man altogether, a gaunt, cadaverous, tall, careworn, middle-aged man, also a great one. There could be no question as to that, for besides being possessed of wealth, which in the opinion of some minds constitutes greatness, he was chairman of a railway company, and might have changed situations with the charwoman who attended the head office of the same, without much difference being felt. He was also a director of several other companies, which, fortunately for them, did not appear to require much direction in the conduct of their affairs mr auberly was also leader of the passion in his own circle and an oracle among his own parasites but strange to say he was nobody whatever in any other sphere cabmen it is true appeared to have an immense respect for him on first acquaintance for his gold rings and chains bespoke wealth and he was a man of commanding presence but their respect never outlived a first engagement cabmen seldom touched their hats to mr auberly on receiving their fare they often parted from him with a smile as grim as his own and once a peculiarly daring member of the fraternity was heard blandly to request him to step again into the cab, and he would drive him the nine hundred and ninety-ninth part of an inch that was still due on the odd sixpence. That generous man even went further, and when his fare walked away without making a reply, he shouted after him that, if he'd only do him the honour to come back, he'd throw an inch and a half extra for nothing. But Mr. Auberly was inexorable, "'Louisa, dear,' said Mr. Arberley, recovering from the grim smile which had indicated his appreciation of his own fireside, "'pour me another cup of coffee, and then you had better run away to bed. It is getting late.' "'Yes, Papa,' replied a little dark-eyed, dark-haired girl, laying down her book and jumping up to obey the command. "'It may be added that she was also dark-dressed, for Mr. Arberley had become a widower and his child motherless only six months before.' while louisa was pouring out the coffee her father rose and turned his back to the fire it was really interesting almost awe-inspiring to behold mr auberly rise he was so very tall and so exceedingly straight so remarkably perpendicular was he so rigidly upright that a hearty but somewhat rude sea captain with whom he once had business transactions said to his mate on one occasion that he believed mr auberly must have been born with a handspike lashed to his backbone. Yes, he was wonderfully upright, and it would have been downright madness to have doubted the uprightness of the spirit which dwelt in such a body. So nobody did doubt it, of course, except a few jaundiced and sceptical folk, who never could be got to believe anything. "'Good night, my love,' said Mr. Auberly, as the child placed the coffee beside his chair, and then advanced somewhat timidly, and held up her cheek to be kissed. The upright man stooped, and there was a shade less of grimness in his smile as his lips touched his daughter's pale cheek. Louisa or to use the name by which she was better known in the house Lou had clasped her hands tightly together while she was in the act of receiving this tribute of parental affection as if she were struggling to crush down some feeling but the feeling whatever it was would not be crushed down it rose up and asserted itself by causing Lou to burst into a passionate flood of tears throw her arms around her father's neck and hold him tight there while she kissed his cheek all over tut tut child exclaimed mr auberly endeavoring to rearrange the stiff collar and cravat which had been sadly disordered you must really try to get over these there don't be cast down he added in a kinder tone patting lou's head good night dear run away to bed now and be a good girl lou smiled faintly through her tears as she looked up at her father who had again become upright said good night and ran from the room with a degree of energy that might have been the result of exuberant spirits though possibly it was caused by some other feeling. Mr. Auberly sat for some time, dividing his attentions pretty equally between the paper, the fire, and the coffee, until he recollected having received a letter that day which he had forgotten to answer, whereupon he rose and sat down before his writing-table to reply. The letter was from a poor widower, a sister-in-law of his own, who had disgraced herself for ever, at least in Mr. Auberly's eyes, by having married a waterman. Mr. Auberly shut his eyes obstinately to the fact that the said waterman had, by the sheer force of intelligence, good conduct, courage, and perseverance, raised himself to the command of an East India man. It is astonishing how firmly some people can shut their eyes, sew them up, as it were, and plaster them over, to some things, and how easily they can open them to others. Mr. Auberly's eyes were open only to the fact that his sister-in-law had married a waterman, and that was an impardonable sin— for which she was for ever banished from the sunshine of his presence the widow's letters set forth that since her husband's death she had been in somewhat poor circumstances though not in absolute poverty for which she expressed herself thankful that she did not write to ask for money but that she had a young son a boy of about twelve whom she was very anxious to get into her mercantile house of some sort and, knowing his great influence, etc., etc., she hoped that, forgetting, if not forgiving, the past, now that her husband was dead, he would kindly do what he could, etc., etc. To this Mr. Arberley replied that it was impossible to forgive the past, but he would do his best to forget it, and also to procure a situation for her son, though certainly not in his own office, on one consideration, namely that she, the widow, should forget the past also, including his own, Mr. Auberly's, existence, as she had once before promised to do, and that she should never inform her son, or any other member of the family, if there happened to be any other members of it, of the relationship existing between them, nor apply to him by visit or by letter for any further favours. In the event of her agreeing to this arrangement, she might send her son to his residence on Beverly Square, on Thursday next, between eleven and twelve. Just as he concluded this letter, a footman entered softly and laid a three-cornered note on the table. "'Stay, Hopkins, I want you,' said Mr. Auberly, as he opened the note and ran his eye over it. Hopkins, who was clad in blue velvet and white stockings, stood like a mute beside his master's chair. He was very tall and very thin and very red in the nose. "'Is the young woman waiting, Hopkins?' "'Yes, sir, she's in the lobby.' "'Send her up.' In a few seconds Hopkins reopened the door and looked down with majestic condescension on a smart young girl whom he ushered into the room. "'That will do. You may go. Stay. Post this letter. Come here, young woman.' The young woman, who was evidently a respectable servant girl, approached with some timidity. "'Your name is Mattie Marion, I understand?' "'Yes, sir. At least so your late mistress, Miss Tippet, informs me. Pray, what does Mattie stand for?' "'Martha, sir.' "'Well, Martha, Miss Tippett gives you a very good character, which is well, because I intend you to be servant to my child, her maid. But Miss Tippett qualifies her remarks by saying that you are a little careless in some things. What things are you careless in?' "'La—sir—' "'You must not say la, my girl,' interrupted Mr. Arberley with a frown. "'Nor use exclamations of any kind in my presence. What are the some things referred to?' "'Sure, I do know, sir,' said the abashed Mattie i suppose there's a many things i ain't very good at but please sir i don't mean to do nothing wrong sir i don't indeed and i'll try to serve you well sir if i were only to plaze my missus as i'm leaving against my will for i love my there that will do said mr auberly somewhat sternly as the girl appeared to be getting excited ring that bell now go downstairs and hopkins will introduce you to my housekeeper who will explain your duties to you Hopkins entered and solemnly marched Martha Marion to the regions below. Mr. Auberly locked away his papers, pulled out his watch, it up, and then, lighting a bedroom candle, proceeded with much gravity upstairs. He was a very stately-looking man and strikingly dignified as he walked upstairs to his bedroom, slowly and deliberately, as though he were marching at his own funeral to the tune of something even deader than the dead march in Saul. It is almost a violation of propriety— think of mr auberly doing such a very undignified thing as going to bed yet truth requires us to tell that he did it that he undressed himself as other mortals do that he clothed himself in the wonted ghostly garment and that when his head was last seen in the act of closing the curtains around him there was a conical white cap on it tied with a string below the chin and ornamented on the top with a little tassel which waggled as though it were bidding a triumphant and final adieu to, to human dignity Half an hour later Mrs. Rose, the housekeeper, a matronly, good-looking woman, with very red cheeks, was busy in the study explaining to Mattie Marion her duties. She had already shown her all over the house, and was now at the concluding lesson. "'Look here now, Marion,' began the housekeeper. "'Oh, please don't call me Marion. I ain't used to it. Call me Mattie. Do now!' "'Very well, Mattie,' continued Mrs. Rose, with a smile. "'I have no objection. You Irish are a strange race.' Now look here, this is Master's study, and mind, hes very particular, dreadful particular. She paused and looked at her pupil, as if desirous of impressing this point deeply on her memory. He don't like his papers or books touched, not even dusted, so you'll be careful not to dust them, or touch him even so much as with your little finger, for he likes to find him in the morning just as he left them at night. Yes, Mrs. Rose, said Mattie, who was evidently giving up her whole soul to the instruction that was being imparted now continued the housekeeper the arranging of this room will be your last piece of work at night you'll just come in rake out the grate carry off the ashes lay the new fire put the matches handy on the chimney-piece look round to see if that's all right and then turn off the gas the master is an early riser and lights the fire hisself of the morning yes'm said mattie with a courtesy now go and do it said mrs rose that i may see you understand it begin with the grate and the ashes mattie who was in truth an experienced maid of all work began with alacrity to discharge the duties of her new station she carried off the ashes and returned with the materials for next day's fire in a shovel here she gave a slight indication of her so-called carelessness awkwardness would have been more appropriate by letting two or three pieces of stick and a bit of coal fall on the carpet in her passage across the room be careful mattie said mrs rose gently it's all owing to haste take your time and you won't do such things Matty apologized, picked up the materials, and laid the fire. Then she took her apron and approached the writing-table, evidently with the intention of taking the dust off the corners, but not by any means intending to touch the books or papers. "'Stop!' cried Mrs. Rose sternly. Matty stopped, with a guilty look. "'Not a touch,' said Mrs. Rose. "'Not even the edges, nor the legs,' inquired the pupil. "'Neither edges nor legs,' said the instructor. "'Shirk! Sure, do no harm!' "'Matty,' said Mrs. Rose solemnly, "'the great thing that your countrywomen have to learn is obedience.' "'Thank ye,' said Matty, who, being overawed by the housekeeper's solemnity, felt confused and was uncertain whether the reference to her countrywomen was complimentary or the reverse. "'Now,' continued Mrs. Rose, "'the matches.' Matty placed the box of matches on the chimney-piece. "'Very well. Now you've got to look round to see that's all right.' "'Mattie looked round on the dark portraits that covered the walls—supposed to be ancestors—on the shelves of books, great and small—new and old, supposed to be read—on the vases—statuettes, chairs, tables, desks, curtains, papers, etc., etc., and being utterly ignorant of what constituted right and wrong in reference to such things, finally turned her eyes on Mrs. Rose with an innocent smile. "'Don't you see that the shutters are neither shut nor barred, Mattie?' she had not seen this but she at once went and closed and barred them in which operation she learned first that the bars refused to receive their respective catches with unyielding obstinacy for some time and second that they suddenly gave in without rhyme or reason and pinched her fingers severely now then what's next inquired mrs rose put out the gas suggested mattie and leave yourself in the dark said the housekeeper in a tone of playful irony "'Ah, sure! Didn't I forget the candle?' In order to rectify this oversight, Mattie laid the unlighted candle which she had brought with her to the room on the writing-table, and going to the chimney-piece returned with the match-box. "'Be careful now, Mattie,' said Mrs. Rose earnestly. "'There's nothing but I've such a fear of as fire. You can't be too careful.' This remark made Mattie, who was of an anxious temperament, extremely nervous. She struck the match hesitatingly, and lighted the candle shakily. Of course it would not light—candles never do on such occasions—and a long, red-hot end of burnt wood projected from the point of the match. "'Don't let the burnt end drop into the waste-paper basket!' exclaimed Mrs. Rose, in an unfortunate moment. "'Where?' exclaimed Mattie, with a start that sent the red-hot end into the centre of a mass of papers. "'There, just at your feet! Don't be so nervous, girl!' cried Mrs. Rose." mattie in her anxiety not to drop the match at once dropped it into the waste-paper basket which was instantly alight a stamp of the foot might have extinguished it but this did not occur to either of the domestics the housekeeper who was a courageous woman seized the basket in both hands and rushed with it to the fireplace thereby fanning the flame into a blaze and endangering her dress and curls she succeeded however in cramming the basket and its contents into the grate then the two, with the aid of poker, tongs, and shovel, crushed and beat out the fire. "'There! I said you'd do it!' gasped Mrs. Rose, as she flung herself, panting into Mr. Arberley's easy-chair. "'This comes of being in a hurry!' "'I was always unfortunate,' sighed Mattie, still holding the shovel and keeping her eye on the grate, as if ready to make a furious attack on the smallest spark that should venture to show itself. "'Come now, we'll go to bed,' said Mrs. Rose, rising. "'But first look well round to see that all is safe. A thorough and most careful investigation was made of the basket, the grate, and the carpet surrounding the fireplace, but nothing beyond the smell of burnt papers should be discovered, so the instructor and pupil put out the gas, shut the door, and retired to the servants' hall, where Hopkins, the cook, the housemaid, and a small maid-of-all-work awaited their arrival, supper being already on the table. Here Mrs. Rose entertained the company, with a graphic, not to say exaggerated, account of the small fire in the study, and wound up with an eloquent appeal to be aware of fire, and an assurance that there was nothing on the face of the whole earth that she had a greater horror of. Meanwhile the little spark among the papers, forgotten in the excitement of the succeeding blaze of the waste-paper basket, continued to do its slow but certain work. Having fallen on the cloth between two bundles, it smouldered until it reached a cotton pen-wiper, which received it rather greedily in its embrace. The pen-wiper lay in contact with some old letters which were dry and tindery in their nature and being piled closely together in a heap, afforded enlarged accommodation for the spark, which in about half an hour became quite worthy of being termed a swell. After that things went on like, like a house on fire, if we may venture to use that too often misapplied expression, in reference to the elegant mansion in Beverly Square on that raw November night. End of chapter 1